Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And we're back after a bit of an extended break. I unfortunately contracted COVID and I was a bit under the weather for a few days. So we got we got delayed. Yes, I'm so glad you're feeling better. How bad was it? So the first day was honestly pretty bad. So, okay, it started with like a mm-hmm. little tickle in my throat. And then the mm-hmm. next day I had like a fever and felt very fluey. And then I had a really good sleep. I woke up and then it was so strange. Like the remainder of my days of symptoms was just like congestion. Like I had a like a, a slight cold. Yeah. But honestly, I'm so happy that I'm vaccinated because I've heard that it's been a lot worse for some people. Yes, absolutely. I'm so happy to be vaccinated too. But we don't need to get into that. (laughs) We have a (laughs) really cool episode for you today. One that talks about an aspect of the prison system that isn't really often discussed. And that's food and food fraud. We do have a lot to cover. But first, if you do follow us on Instagram, you may have seen our post about some scandal that recently occurred over the past week. We're not going to get into it like too, too much because honestly, it's been pretty stressful and pretty draining. But we do want to clarify a few things. So we have a formal correction from our last episode. I had mentioned that there's an upcoming trial and this was a misinterpretation on my part. So there is no upcoming trial, only pending court cases at this time. And we wanted to add that while we love telling these stories and trying to add some nuance to the discussion, It is important to remember that these are real people, mothers, wives with hard-earned careers that can be seriously negatively impacted by situations like this. So just to be very clear, there is no trial for now. Yeah. And um, in response to the large influx of direct messages Mm -hmm. that we have received, (laughs) we cannot and we will not publish information sent to us via DM because we really do not have any way of verifying these messages. So just want to clarify that as well. Yeah, for sure. As much as we would love to be investigative journalists, we're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're dietitians with a podcast. 
And the purpose of this podcast is to provide entertainment and education by telling stories at the intersection of true crime and food. And using our nutrition backgrounds, we try to add nuance to these scandalous discussions. Mm -hmm. And in telling these stories, we make our sources very clear. We try to consistently question our own biases, and we do our best to consider differing perspectives as we retell the stories. But we're human, and we all have different life experiences, and our opinions may not always align with yours, and that is totally okay. The goal of this podcast is to encourage discussion and deeper thinking about nutrition and food concepts that often seem black and white, but are actually very, very complex. Yes. And just one last thing, like we try to be as transparent as possible. When we have sources that we are discussing, they will always be in our our references and our show notes. So yeah, if you have any questions specific to something we say in the podcast, go and check those out first. With that, should we move on? Let's move on. <laughs> yes, let's definitely move on. This story is so cool. And the more research I did when I was trying to put together the intro, I was like, ooh, we could do multiple episodes on this. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I was so excited to research today's topic because I had this idea of what prison food would be like, a.k.a. terrible, Mm -hmm. and I was not disappointed. Prison food? Sucks. Yep. (laughs) Shocking to no one, but yeah, it's pretty bad. So let's start from the beginning. The first prison in the United States was established in 1773 and in Canada in 1835. And I would absolutely love to be a fly on the wall in those first prisons because can you even imagine the type of abuse of human rights that went on back in the day? Probably horrific. And by looking at the history of prison food throughout the 1800s, we can actually get a pretty good sense of how awful they were. And so we're going to start by looking at early prisons in England because that's where the most well-documented info was. And also, I love the British. (laughs) If anyone has ever watched Call the Midwife or Peaky Blinders, which are two of my favorite, favorite shows, you'll know that working-class Victorian-era England was filled with hardship. Many were stuck living in filth and poverty with absolutely zero social support, and so many people had to make ends meet with gambling and theft. Once in a prison, a typical daily prison diet in a 19th century English prison 
included small portions of bread and meat, a pint of gruel, and on special occasion, a portion of cheese, potatoes, or soup. Oh my gosh, what is gruel? (laughs) Gruel is as disgusting as it sounds. (laughs) It's a watery porridge made with ground oats, ground wheat, or cornmeal, boiled in water or milk, sweetened with sugar or molasses, and seasoned with salt. So, I mean, it could be considered pretty similar to oatmeal or cream of wheat from today, but I'm willing to bet it was pretty watery, not well seasoned or sweetened. What's the definition of, oh, the definition of gruel is oatmeal. But gross oatmeal. (laughs) It really doesn't sound great to me, especially when you consider that at this time, prisoners were often performing a lot of manual labor and expending a fair amount of energy each day. And I always think of that opening scene of Les Mis. Have you ever seen the movie or the play? Of course. When all the prisoners are like heave hoeing Mm -hmm. on the rope. You need a lot more than a bowl of gruel to do that kind of manual labor. But a modern day study of prison records from this time actually shows that most prisoners maintained their weight while in prison. And a small percentage, 7% of men, 13% of women, actually gained weight while in prison. And before you go thinking that, hmm, maybe things weren't that bad. Maybe people were actually quite well fed. I think it actually says more about how bad conditions were Mm. outside of the prison. Really good point. Yeah. So according to prison regulations throughout the 1800s, prisoners were more than welcome to complain about the food if they wanted, but repeated complaints could result in punishment. Prisoners' stories often share about how food was low quality and insufficient, and they felt frustrated by not being able to make decisions about their food. And that last point I thought was a unique perspective that I hadn't really considered. So yes, the food, it doesn't taste good, but how frustrating would it be to not be able to make choices about your food for years? Mm -hmm. Day after day, meal after meal, year after year after year, you just don't get any choice with your food. And that's something like as citizens not in prison, we have a lot of choice and freedom around our food choices multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. And then it made me wonder, I wonder how prison can change someone's relationship with food when they get out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they getting out and being just overwhelmed with choice? And do they almost have like the reverse of a last supper effect, like a first supper effect where they kind of go wild and get everything that they've been missing? I'm just curious. Honestly, I mean, that's a really great question. It would be so interesting to like look at research in this area if any has been done because I even think about Rosie, my dog, (laughs) um, and she's from the streets. Like she was rescued and um, she treats every single meal and every single treat as though it was like the last piece of food she was ever going to get or ever going to receive. And yeah, I, I wonder if her having her first like few weeks, few months on the streets impacted that at all. I mean, I know she's a dog and I can't compare her to a human being, but I could only imagine that the effects would be similar if you were being deprived of food for an extended period of time. For sure. And not even like they, like individuals in prison are technically meeting their nutrition needs and they're being provided a substantial or a significant, no, an adequate amount of calories. So it's not technically deprivation, but they're deprived of choice and of the flavors that they want. And I'm just so curious. Like I did do a quick, 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 quick search to see if there was any actual studies in the area. Nothing came up quickly and I didn't dwell on it too long, but I would just love to see that research about food relationships after prison. Yeah. And I don't necessarily get into food relationships, but I do discuss like nutrients and stuff like that. And like, as you said, the caloric value and mm-hmm. the macronutrients, some of the micronutrients are adequate, but adequate yeah. to who? Adequate to each inmate individually, or is it an adequate level for an yes. average inmate? Totally, totally. And I actually went on a like a little Twitter rant the other day where... <laughs> of course you did. I know. <laughs> but restriction, this idea of being restricted in terms of food. So often like a diet will say, I'm like, I'm not a restrictive diet or this is not a restrictive meal plan, but that is subjective. Mm -hmm. What is restrictive to one person is not, may not be restrictive to another person. And restrictive is also mental. It's not just 
in my opinion, it is not just physically depriving of calories. It's restriction of choice. It's feeling restricted in terms of, you know, I can't have this even if I want it. Mm -hmm. So food for thought. Great points. <laughs> I feel like if I ever do a PhD, which I won't. Prison food? <laughs> it will be on prison food <laughs> and food relationships. Now, some people, especially historically, might think that prisoners don't deserve to have nice meals or have a lot of choice when it comes to food because they're in prison. But I'd like to direct you to our episode on the Minnesota starvation experiment, where we learned that when people are deprived of food, they are completely unable to function at their full potential, both physically and mentally. So they can become aggressive, irritable, and struggle with emotional regulation. And in an environment like a prison where tensions are heightened and people don't have a lot of individual choice and freedom, that could be especially detrimental. This is why prison food can be considered a hidden punishment. So in prison, the food is often higher in refined carbohydrates, sodium, and sugar, and based around foods that most major health guidelines would recommend to have only in moderation. In a New York Times opinion piece by Patricia Lee Brown, the president and founder of an organization called Impact Justice, Alex Busansky, was quoted as saying, food is a fundamental human rights issue. It's not just one bad meal or one experience, but years and years and thousands and thousands of meals. So it kind of puts it in perspective. Mm -hmm. It really does. Throughout the 1800s, food in prisons was a subject of great debate. On one hand, it's cruel to starve prisoners and prisons have a duty to maintain the well-being of their prisoners. And on the other hand, it was often thought that serving food that was too delicious would actually be an incentive for people on the outside to commit more crimes, which I kind of doubt. But I guess if the situation was really desperate, it might be. Mm -hmm. So the quote unquote solution was to serve nutritionally adequate but bland and boring food so that you're technically maintaining physical well-being, but it's not enticing enough to encourage people to come to prison for the food. Right. But this also makes me question, and I will touch on this again a little bit later, like at what point, like the human rights violation, mm -hmm. is it a human rights violation against not being adequately nourished or not having choice with food? Because this was still technically violate somebody's choice around what they choose to eat in terms of religiously, if they have any like dietary restrictions and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Just a, again, another food for thought. So now a surprising item on prison menus in the 1800s was lobster. Lobster is definitely considered more of a fancy food these days. But up until the late 1800s, it was actually seen as a poverty food. And that was that because it was a like bottom feeder? Kind of. So have you ever cooked a lobster? I have. I didn't. I don't like <laughs> the whole process. I find it a little bit stressful. Yes. Um, but yes, I have been in the room when a lobster has been cooked. And what don't you like about it? The screaming. Yeah, the fact that they're being boiled alive. Mm -hmm. So lobsters are actually boiled alive when they're prepared properly. And this is because they have a unique protein digesting enzyme in their stomach that actually breaks down their flesh very quickly after they die. And there's a bacteria called Vibrio bacteria that thrives on the decaying flesh of lobsters. So quite quickly, lobsters become a source of food poisoning after they've died. So eating an improperly prepared lobster can make people very sick after eating it. That's so interesting. So leftover lobster would be like a no-go. If it was prepared properly, the enzyme that breaks down the protein wouldn't be active. Okay. So that's why it's boiled alive. But if it's not boiled alive, if it dies first, there's a really good chance that that enzyme has already had the chance to start breaking down the flesh and the flesh, that bacteria really thrives on the rotting flesh, essentially, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the lobster. Okay. Interesting, huh? Yeah. I've never had leftover lobster before, though, because I always eat it. Who all. has leftovers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so using food as punishment has been a practice in American prisons since the 19th century, where nutritionally incomplete diets of bread and water were commonly used to punish prisoners. So in the 1970s, Arkansas prisons would serve something called gruel, very close to gruel, <laughs> in, in terms of the name, not so much the content. Gruel was made by combining meat, potatoes, margarine, 
syrup, weird addition, vegetables, eggs, and seasoning into a paste, and then baking the mixture in a pan. Oh, my. And the use, I know, sounds, I mean, I'd take a bite if presented with grue, but I'm sure it's disgusting. But it kind of reminds me of like a meatloaf, banana bread, like, yeah, like a pancake vibe. It tastes like a fritter. If if (laughs) well-seasoned. It might not be the worst thing in the world. But the use of GRU was discontinued after a federal court found its use to be unconstitutional. So as laws developed over the centuries and human rights became more legally protected, prison menus have evolved quite significantly, but budget is still typically a top concern. And I know you'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. So there were two main Supreme Court cases that involved the constitutional rights of prisoners, Turner versus Safley and Olone versus Estate of Shabazz. They both happened in 1987, and they're still used today to determine if an inmate's religious dietary rights are being breached. So these cases, neither of them were about food specifically, but they focused on the constitutionality of prison regulations and the rights of prisoners. So today... Pretty much all across the U.S. and Canada, prisoners do have the right to access kosher, halal, and vegan meals if they require them. Mm -hmm. So like I said, one of the main issues with prison food is budget. In Canada, there are approximately 40,000 prisoners total, and our total budget for correctional services is $2.6 billion. In the U.S., there are 2.12 million people incarcerated. How insane. And they spend about $81 billion, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. But some say that that is a gross underestimate. That number blows my mind. Yeah, it's wild. Despite these huge budgets, the food budget itself is quite tight. So in Canada, an estimate from 2017 suggests that there's a fixed daily food budget of about $5.41 per inmate. And in the U.S., the budget varies state to state, but it seems to hover around $3 per inmate per day, which doesn't leave a lot of room for delicious food. No, it does not. But compared to what I'm going to tell you, it's not bad. Seems a little extravagant. (laughs) That is mind-blowing. Yeah. Because of the poor quality of the food and the smaller portions, food can actually become part of an underground economy of sorts among inmates. Food can be bought typically at a jail canteen and then traded and sold for other items. And inmates with some culinary prowess have even gotten creative with canteen items and invented some simple prison recipes. So prison pad thai is a blend of ramen noodles, peanut butter, and hot sauce. Prison pizza involves crushing up saltines, Doritos, and dry ramen noodles in a bag, adding water, and then making like a microwavable dough. Creative. Very creative. Don't know if I'd try it. (laughs) Don't know if I'd try it. And then you just top it with whatever's available. And then this one I would not try. Prison sangria, which is apples, oranges, and fruit cups, bread, ketchup, and sugar that gets mixed up and allowed to ferment until you have sangria. Yeah, I remember seeing this first in, was it Orange is the New Black, and being like, whoa, this is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty disgusting. I mean, desperate times, I guess, but... Yeah, gotta do what you gotta do. A typical modern prison menu in a U.S. federal prison actually contains a pretty diverse set of menu options. So hummus wraps, Swedish meatballs, bean burritos, and sloppy joes, which actually doesn't sound too bad to me, but there is something that is served in some U.S. prisons that is equal parts fascinating and horrifying, and it deserves special attention, Nutriloaf. And it's exactly what it sounds like, a loaf of nutrition, also known as prison loaf or lockup loaf. Becca, if you scroll down a bit, I've got um, a couple pictures of it. Looks like a vegan meatloaf almost. That's the vibe. We'll put a picture on our Instagram for you. And it's a horrifying culinary masterpiece of sorts. It's a bland mashup of the previous day's leftovers, sometimes put right into a blender blended up, and then cooked. So pretty similar to the sounds of the grue that was banned in Arkansas. And this neutral loaf has been described as unpleasant and cardboard-like, but does contain a decent mixture of the nutrients needed to sustain health. It's currently served in some U.S. prisons and was formerly served in Canada. 
and it is controversial and possibly unethical. And it's typically served to inmates who have misbehaved as a punishment, for example, following an assault, because it can be served without requiring utensils. See, that's problematic. If you're serving it to it everyone, mm-hmm. then I feel like it's different. But if you're using it as punishment... As a punishment. Then it becomes a little bit... I mean, it's already a bit unethical. I'm sure they could say, oh, it's for safety because it doesn't require utensils. Well, what about a sandwich? What about a sandwich? <laughs> that's a great point. I know... There are some cultures that do eat with their hands, but in North America, we typically eat with utensils. And so making someone eat without utensils is kind of humiliating. Like it adds a layer of punishment to it. Absolutely. But if needed to be done, it can be done. Yes, for sure. Plus, I love a good sandwich. They could totally just do a sandwich. The American Correctional Association discourages the use of food as punishment. So this is pretty much exactly what you were saying. But it's not officially regulated. Mm -hmm. So compliance is voluntary. However, denying inmates food as punishment is unconstitutional. But because the loaf is considered nutritionally complete, it's sometimes justified as a dietary adjustment. There have been multiple lawsuits about neutral loaf. In 2008, the Vermont Supreme Court held that a neutral loaf and water diet is considered punishment. However, in 2010, Arizona won a federal judgment in favor of providing prisoners with neutral loaf. In 2015, New York State discontinued the use of Nutri-Loaf throughout prisons statewide. So as you can see, it varies state to state. And although the use of Nutri-Loaf is declining, it is still used occasionally. And with that, I'm going to toss it to you for the main story. Amazing. That was a perfect segue to the main story. So thank you very much, Sarah. Did it make you hungry for some Nutri-Loaf? Oh, so hungry. I actually am a little hungry and I... Can't tell if I entered this recording hungry or if all of this conversation about food. The lobster, though, not the neutral loaf, made me hungry. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I kind of want like a fritter now, like a fried chunk of neutral loaf. Yeah. Like a not not the neutral loaf, like a zucchini fritter would be so good right now. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Okay. So some of the sources that I use for this episode include a prison policy initiative report a paper published in the Prison Service Journal by David Ramsbotham, an article by Camilla Domino-Soki in NPR, as well as a number of other news articles. And as always, they can be found in our show notes. So this story takes place in Alabama, the state known for its coastal beaches, college football teams, Southern hospitality, and its peanuts, apparently. Hmm. Did you know that? Nope, I didn't. It's like one of the largest producing peanut states. I actually had no idea, but our Peanut Corporation of America episode was not, it didn't involve Alabama. It was like Virginia, Georgia, Texas. Yeah, didn't know that. But Alabama is sometimes referred to as the lizard, cotton plantation, or yellowhammer state. And yellowhammer is a type of woodpecker. Alabama is also called Sweet Home Alabama or Heart of Dixie, which is the slogan found on their license plate. Heart of Dixie or Sweet Home Alabama? Heart of Dixie. Oh, cute. So the state motto is Ademus Jura Nostra Defendre, which translated from Latin means we dare to defend or maintain our rights, which is somewhat ironic considering today's story about prisoners' rights or lack thereof and the government's historic disregard for BIPOC and female rights. Mm, Okay, I'm invested already. Alabama is home to 132 jails and 15 state prison facilities spread across its 67 different counties. And do you know the difference between a jail and a prison? I just thought jail was like prison light. Yeah, that's basically... Like smaller sentences. That's basically, that's correct. So yeah, so jails hold people awaiting trial or those who have shorter sentences and are often under like a local jurisdiction, so like a city or a county. Whereas prisons are often longer term and are under state or federal jurisdiction. So citizens in these institutions have likely broken state or federal laws. As of December 31st, 2018, there were almost 27,000 inmates under jurisdiction of correctional authorities. So that's almost 27,000 people in jail or prison. And more than double that number were under probation or parole. With that being said, incarceration rates in Alabama are super high, and they actually stand out globally, even when compared to overall incarceration rates across the U.S. 
So in Alabama, um, just under 1,000 people out of every 100,000 people are incarcerated, Mm. which is much higher when compared to the overall U.S. incarceration rate, which is just over 650 people out of every 100,000 people. So Alabama actually like really brings up the average. The living conditions are also known to be pretty bad, as you were saying, so much so that Alabama was actually the only state where the prison policy initiative could not find evidence of the state's Department of Correction providing free masks to prisoner during the initial spread of COVID-19. Oh, wow. Now, that isn't, hasn't been proven, but this initiative, mm-hmm. this prison policy initiative could not find evidence that they were providing masks. Right. So it's just kind of just like an example of how bad the situation might be in Alabama prisons. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about incarceration without also talking about the racial disparities in these facilities. A 2021 analysis of data looking at state prison populations found that Black Americans made up over half of the prison population in Alabama, yet only 27% of the general population. So the Black incarceration rate is over 1,400 people per every 100,000 people, while the white incarceration rate is only 425 people per every 100,000 people. Wow. So there's a, an incredibly high disparity. That's really shocking. Yeah. And um, like for-profit or private prisons are a huge contributor to racial disparities and in, in longer sentencing, but that's like a whole other ginormous topic for another day. Totally. I don't know if you listened to My Favorite Murder this past week, but they covered a massive prison riot. I can't remember the name of it, but they talk about Pretty much like what you just mentioned in this paragraph, like the racial disparities. Anyways, really good episode and and would kind of just complement this one well if anyone listens. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go listen to it after this. So I I don't wanna hate on Alabama too much. I've never been there, but I'm sure it's a lovely place. I did check our our podcast analytics to see if we have any listeners from the state and and we do. So Oh, cool. I am sorry if I have or do offend you in any way. This is nothing against Alabama, the state, but like North American prison systems in general just need some mm-hmm. reform. Not in Alabama specifically. Also in Alabama. But... Also in Alabama. That's just where today's story takes place. <laughs> yeah. So that's okay. why I'm talking about it so much. Anyways, let's get into it. When it comes to prison food in the U.S., there are differences from state to state. Differences in funding, budgets, programs, and systems. In Alabama, the county sheriff contracts and provides the meals. And there was a very sneaky Depression-era law that shockingly still existed until 2018. The law states that the sheriff's department that oversees a jail can keep surplus state funds allocated to the inmate food budget as personal income. Oh, my God. Isn't that wild? That's a, that seems like a huge oversight. Absolutely. Apparently, at the time that this law was put in place, feeding the inmates was the sheriff's wife's responsibility. Oh, my God. So I guess, like, if the wife was able to reduce the amount that she was spending on the food, the family could keep the rest. That is literally just asking for corruption. Of course they would try to keep the budget as tiny, tiny as possible. It was directly lining their pockets. Exactly. And yeah, there's huge incentive to cut the cost of food so that there's more remaining in the food budget at the end of each year. But there's also incentive to incarcerate and hold more inmates in jail if you have a good budgeting system in place. More inmates quite literally equates to more money. Wow. On the other hand, though... This law states that if there is a deficit in the food budget, the sheriffs are personally responsible for covering the gap. So they have to pay for any deficit from their own savings account. What the heck? So this one, I feel like maybe it was to prevent wives in like the 20s and 30s from like creating too much of like too many lavish dishes. I don't know. Yeah. It's encouraging them to feed inmates poorly. Mm -hmm. In two different ways. If they feed them too well, they're paying for it. And if they feed them not well enough, they get to keep it. Yes. And in order to hit that, like, that number on the head mm-hmm. must be very challenging. So either way, you're going to go above or below, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you definitely want to go below if you're the sheriff. Yeah. 
Wow. Sarah, you mentioned that in the U.S., the average daily food budget is around $3 per inmate. Mm -hmm. Well, in Alabama, up until 2019, the daily food budget per inmate was $1.75. How? And this was the amount that was set in the late 1920s, which I did like a little quick search, and that would be (gasps) $24.40 in today's money. And that number seems way more reasonable to me. So that number hasn't changed since the 1920s. That is like, based on what I could find, that is what it said. That it was set in the 1920s. That's wild. Yes. I couldn't feed myself for one day on $1.75. There's no way. But then like, you have to factor if you're mass producing food, how cheap you could get it. Yes. Bulk food. Yeah, I know. So the amount that prisons were allocated daily did not increase with inflation. And the state gives the sheriff... $1.75 $1.75 per inmate per day to do with it what they please. They also get an additional like five cents to a dollar per inmate for the like preparation and serving of the food. And mm-hmm. this number kind of depends on like the number of inmates in each facility as well as like the labor required. So it's a very stingy budget. And um, this type of system, as you were saying, it's set up to be taken advantage of. Yeah. And it has been excessively. But even though this is technically legal. Some sheriffs have broken other laws in the process. Wow. So in, two, in 2005, uh, Mobile County Sheriff Jack Tillman pled guilty for perjury and an ethics violation for taking jail food funds to start a personal retirement account. And I think where he went wrong here was that he lied about it. Okay. If he was honest, it would have been completely legal. Yes. <laughs> Although all of this is a huge ethics violation, so I don't even know how that was taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. And then the law didn't change. So in January 2018, a massive lawsuit was filed by the Southern Center and Alabama Appleseed for Law and Justice. So the Southern Center is an organization that advocates for human rights in the criminal justice system. Alabama Appleseed is a nonprofit advocacy group for justice and equity. So they sued 49 Alabama sheriffs to make them release information on their profits from the jail food funds since taxpayers should have a right to know where their taxpayer dollars are going. And these are technically taxpayer dollars. The sheriffs refused on the basis that those numbers are personal, but some of the numbers were released anyways. Mm. And I'm going to tell you about those numbers. So Sheriff Tom Tate of Monroe County collected over $110,000 over a three-year period ending in 2016. Wow. Sheriff Anna Franklin from Morgan County was held in contempt and fined after taking $160,000 from her food fund and investing it into a car lot owned by a convicted felon. Okay. Who was convicted of felons after the fact as well. So it was, I think, a like crime ring of sorts. I wonder if they met in prison. They may have. Wow. The court ruled that Franklin had violated an agreement that she had made with the former Morgan County Sheriff, Greg Bartlett. So in 2009, Bartlett was briefly sent to jail after taking 212000 from his jail kitchen over the span of three years. Oh, my gosh. A lot of these happen over the span of three years. I don't know if that's like the amount of time they're sheriff for a jail, but possibly. Yeah. Most notably, Bartlett cut food costs by purchasing a truck full of corn dogs for $1,000 and feeding them to his inmates twice a day for weeks. Oh, my gosh. One inmate claimed that they would receive peanut butter sandwiches with a layer of peanut butter so thin that it looked like it was sprayed on with an aerosol can. This inmate also claimed to have lost 35 pounds in five months due to the jail food. Wow. So I know that's kind of a contradiction to what you were saying historically about how people often mm-hmm. gained weight in prison, but I think... No, that was still a minority. Like, it was a small percentage that gained weight. Okay, okay. But yeah, I think as, like, conditions improved outside of prison, more people likely mm-hmm. lose weight in jail or prison. I agree, mm-hmm. yes. So Bartlett had also taken food bank donations to feed inmates over the years. That part actually just shocks me because he took money from food banks to feed prisoners when he was given money to feed prisoners. So unethical. He kept the money that he was given to feed the prisoners and took the money from food banks that are there to help people who are really in need. Mm -hmm. That is just so unethical. So unethical. But this other sheriff, Franklin, she claimed 
that she was not bound by this sheriff, Sheriff Corndog's agreement um, to only (laughs) use jail food funds on food, which is what the agreement had stated. But the judge disagreed. So she was penalized as well. And then we have Etowah County Sheriff Todd Interkin. And this guy really pushed the limits. So over three years, he made more than $750,000 in profits from the jail food fund. The jail that he oversaw held an average of 900 inmates. And I did some fast math on this. And the total food budget based on those numbers would be about $1.725 million for three years. He took almost half of that. Wow. And like, okay, keep in mind here that his annual salary without the food funding was less than $100,000. So he was profiting immensely. Yes, he's making almost an additional two. Hundred and fifty thousand per year on top of his hundred thousand dollar salary. Yeah, and it's more than it's definitely more than that. Based on like what I was reading, is that there's actually a cap in needing to report more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year. So you're like kind of like you don't have to report more than that. What there was some like oh my god, I don't really want to get into it because like I'm not exactly sure how that Confident, worked out. Yeah. But I skimmed through it and I was like, what the heck, this is crazy. But all you need to know is that it's over. $750,000 that he took. Wow. So Intrican's landscaper came forward with personal checks that he had been given from the sheriff, his payment for his services. And the name of the account was the Sheriff Todd Intrican's food provision account. So shortly after this, the landscaper was arrested and charged with drug trafficking following an anonymous complaint of cannabis smoke coming from his apartment. So he was placed in a jail that Intrakin managed, just suspect. For a complaint of cannabis smoke? Yeah, and then they found more drugs in his apartment. Oh, okay. Yeah, and based on, I think, like, the weight of them. So ridiculous. They charged him with trafficking. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, some of the drug laws in Alabama are, I don't know if they've changed or are changing, but they seem a little bit... um, Outdated? Not a little bit. They seem excessively tough. Unreasonable. (laughs) Yes. Wow. Okay. So Intricate was quoted saying, nobody here is underfed. Nobody here is mistreated. I will say it's not the Ritz. So you won't be treated like a king. You'll be treated like someone who has broken the law, which means you won't get your choice about what or when you eat. Intricate released his taxes, which contain this financial information um, to kind of help his defense since when his predecessor died, He was still in office. So like the predecessor was still in office. He passed away Mm -hmm. and the entire food provision for the year was given to his estate. Okay. Make that make sense. Yeah, you can't. Uh This seems so ridiculous. So when Intrakin became the sheriff, he actually had to borrow $150,000 to feed the inmates that year. A debt that he claims he was paying off for years. And sorry, the food provision, like the money for the food is coming from the government? It's taxpayer dollars. But it's considered the property of whoever is sheriff. Of that jail. Essentially. Like if it's going to the estate when you pass away. Yeah. And um, I'll I'll kind of explain why. So essentially, like, they say that it would cost a lot more money if there was more of an open bid process for each kitchen rather than Mm -hmm. the sheriff's, like, outsourcing contractors. So they have like one individual who's like responsible for finding the contractors versus having an open bid process where they'll, they would have to do, oh my gosh, what's it called when you get like three different bids and you have to go through a whole process? You know what I'm talking about. And he was actually, like Intrakin was actually quoted in the Times while this was all happening, stating that the law needed to change, but mm. that it likely wouldn't because it would be more costly for taxpayers. Okay. So Intrakin also released his financial records to demonstrate that he wasn't malnourishing prisoners by taking this much. And in one communication, he mentioned that the prison used a registered dietitian to ensure that the meals contain adequate nutrition. But again, Hmm. adequate to whom? Exactly. And I also tried to see if there was somebody on LinkedIn as a registered Mm -hmm. dietitian for this prison, and I could not find anyone. So who knows? Probably removed it from their LinkedIn after this. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And according to my math, again, this is my math, not fact, that left about 99 cents per inmate per day for food. 99 cents. I I have no idea how you feed three meals a day on 99 cents. 
I don't know if food prices in Alabama are drastically different than Toronto, but you could not buy a chocolate bar at Dollarama for 99 cents. No, you, you can't. could not. And I'll tell you how he did it. So it turns out that Todd would secure free or almost free food that was either expired, rotten, or labeled not fit for human consumption. Great. Now, these claims were allegedly made by former inmates and staff members. So keep that in mind. Allegedly. Okay. <laughs> We've had some issues with that word before. <laughs> Apparently, undisclosed meat would come in cylinder tubes with the warning labels on them. So like not fit for human consumption. And it would be mixed into meals like stews and pastas. Oh, my gosh. Another horror story from an inmate at the Ottawa County Jail mentioned that one of their meals came from an auction following a train wreck and that the inmates were fed the leftover meals from the accident. Hmm. And again, I don't know how accurate these claims are, but these instances were like quoted in news articles that were highlighting the story. Hmm. So Indrikin's story finally made national headlines when it was revealed that he had purchased a $740,000 four-bedroom beach house in Orange Beach, Alabama, with the food provisions, which were almost the exact same amount as his beach house. He claimed that the liberal media was spreading fake news, and for a few months, he kind of snuck under the radar. But we'll get back to that in a minute. Before we do, I kind of want to expand a little bit about what you were talking earlier about, Sarah. I just want to talk about the role of food in prisons and rehabilitation because inmate food offerings and requests are a huge topic of contention. Do you remember the um, was it the QAnon shaman Viking who was a part of the Capitol riot yes. last year? Yep. Okay. Well, his name is Jacob Chansley. And during his trial, he went on somewhat of like a, a hunger strike since the food in jail was not up to snuff. So I remember those. eat for about nine days since the meals weren't vegan or organic. Mm -hmm. And the federal judge in the case allowed for him to be transferred to another jail that offered organic food since Chansley claimed that it was part of his beliefs as a shaman to eat organic food. And people mm -hmm. were pissed. Mm -hmm. But it begs the question, like we're talking about, yeah. at what point is food choice no longer the right of an inmate? And I obviously don't expect you to answer this, but like it's just such a interesting topic that we should continue to reflect on. Because I think that most people would agree that food and adequate nutrition is our right, especially when it's at the hands of the government. Totally. So I was just thinking about hospital food. Mm. And if someone was to demand organic food at a hospital, they wouldn't be able to get it. Yeah. The hospital wouldn't be able to provide it. It's not in the budget. It's not something that is exclusively, at least at most of the hospitals I'm familiar with. It's not something that's available on the There is no organic diet. Right. And there's not a lot of evidence to support organic foods as being, actually, I would say there's no clear evidence to support organic foods as being more healthful mm -hmm. or even safer than conventionally produced foods. And so that gets really tricky because, well, I don't know. This You're right. You've raised an interesting point, and I don't know the answer to this question. But also, what are the belief? What's a shaman? Like, it's spelled different. Um, no, it's Or did shaman. you just spell it like that phonetically? It's spelled like that phonetically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that part of a religion? I thought it was like a, like a medicinal person in traditional cultures like historically traditional cultures. Yeah, so here, a person regarded as having access to an influence in the world of good and evil spirits, especially among some people of Northern Asian and North America. So it's like ritualistic mm -hmm. healing. Mm -hmm. This is all off of, I think, Wikipedia. Wiki. So, I mean, who knows? But, and it begs the question, like you were saying, there's not much evidence for organic food and it being like better for us physically but then mm -hmm. it, it's like at what point where do you say your beliefs aren't valid enough exactly because we have religion where like there's some yeah. aspects that might not necessarily have evidence mm -hmm. but, or even vegan or veganism but those are mm -hmm. beliefs they're beliefs and choices and choices that are completely legitimate yeah 
But at what point does it become your right? I know. It's tricky. Anyways, think about that one. I don't have an answer. (laughs) I don't have an answer either. I just thought it was so interesting how some diets and things are allowed and others aren't. But then some people are given like preferential treatment and are able to be transferred for a specific diet, whereas I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's so many others who have not had that luxury. Absolutely. If that individual, the QAnon riot guy, was not such a public figure at that moment, would he have been transferred to a facility that offered organic foods? I don't know. I don't think that even with all of the attention on that, I don't think he should have been transferred. I think Mm -hmm. it almost would have made a stronger statement had they said no. (laughs) Yeah. So we know from your intro that the deprivation of food or adequate food has been used as a form of punishment or discipline in the prison system. While it has been deemed unconstitutional, it doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to be used. In fact, Mm -hmm. factors increasing suicide risk while incarcerated include an increased risk of assault or unwanted interaction, an overcrowded environment, and changing social structures, as well as a lack of medical care, staff, activity, clothing, and food. So food Mm -hmm. is noted as an element impacting life and quality of life while incarcerated. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. No. Like, food impacts my quality of life every day. And your mental health? And your mental health. Huge. Yeah, exactly. Huge, huge, huge. Emotional regulation? Yeah, and I mean, that begs the question. Other than the obvious human rights violations, like, why is the practice of cutting food funds so detrimental? And... Like it has been well documented that rates of offending are often higher within communities that experience like poverty or extreme stress or even like the fragmentation of like family structures. And mm-hmm. lack of adequate nutrition is sometimes linked to these factors, especially mm-hmm. poverty and, and stress. So crime is usually thought of being a matter of free will, but what if that isn't the whole picture? And you were kind of getting into this just about emotional regulation, stuff like that. But like studies looking at cognitive processes associated with things like violence or impulsivity are now also looking at essential nutrients, brain function, and behavior. Because we know that there are nutrients that we need to survive, but there are also things we need for proper brain development and neurological function. And the brain is like super fatty and we need to, we need to keep it nourished. Yeah. And like adequate for who? (laughs) That is the question of the day. Prison food is adequate, but adequate for who? Yeah. I highly doubt that inmates sit down with a registered dietitian individually and go through. Maybe I'm wrong. There is no way. Every single person has such drastically different nutrition needs. And especially like it would depend on, I'm sure you have people who are six foot six Mm -hmm. and I am pretty sure that most people have some sort of job or task within the prison facility and some would be more physical than others. Mm -hmm. Totally different activity levels. If some people are choosing to work out while they're in the prison system, Mm -hmm. like there's the the needs between each prisoner would be drastically different. Yep. And so you can't say it's adequate for all. Yeah. Do they allow seconds? That's a good question. That is a good question. If you're still hungry, can you get more? I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I feel like it's probably prison to prison. Probably. (laughs) Depends who's working that day. Probably. Oh, gosh. Terrible. But anyways, yeah, just making, and if this isn't already like an argument for allocating or reallocating government funds to like establish a basic income, I really think that it should be. If we could reallocate funds to nutrition, I know that's so biased just saying nutrition, but like also <laughs> many other things, or just like the development of our communities, think of how much money that we would actually end up saving down the line. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, in communities and in rehabilitation, because it's obviously very important. And food-based rehabilitation programs have also seen some success in inmate populations. So programs teaching cooking skills, things like gardening skills, or food-based decision-making, and how it can be helped in areas of food literacy upon release. All this to say that cutting jail food funding is problematic beyond a human rights violation. It could impact brain function, future food security, and rehabilitation back into society. Okay, rant over. Back to the story. And a little trigger warning here. I will be 
briefly mentioning instances of drug abuse, domestic violence, and the rape of a minor. So please skip over the next few minutes if you need. So as I said, Interkin almost slipped under the radar after this food fund scandal since the act of what he was doing was technically legal. And he even ran for the sheriff's office Republican primary election later in 2018, but ultimately conceded to Jonathan Horton, who is or was the Rainbow City police chief, who pledged that if he won, he would not take any of the surplus inmate food funding. So that was like a huge Mm. part of his campaign. But this guy's no hero either, though. Apparently, he has been accused of domestic violence and has a DUI from an incident where he severely injured the other driver. So about a month after the election, police began investigating Interkin on his allegations of statutory rape. So Mary Elizabeth Cross came forward alleging that Interkin had had sex with her multiple times in the early 1990s when he was 29 and she was only 15. Oh, no. She claimed that he would host like drug-fueled parties with friends and underage girls and that he and his friends would take advantage of her and her friends, or the other girls. She alleged that she had had sex with three other men at these parties while still underage, and that two of the men were apparently law enforcement officers. Wow. The details around this story, other than the specific details of the rape, have been corroborated by a friend who was also present at these parties. So in Alabama, the statute of limitations would protect the men of the sexual crime since so much time had passed. But there is no limitation when it comes to a sex crime involving a victim under the age of 16, as long as that crime was committed after January 7th, 1985. And it happened in the 90s, right? It happened in the 90s. Okay. Like, how? I'm sorry. It's just so twisted. Like, the statute of limitations makes no sense to me in some crimes like this. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, why? Why should you be able to get away with it because you did it before 85 or... To somebody who's 17. It's so arbitrary. So Mary Cross initially went to Horton with her allegations. So he's the police chief who won the election against Interkin. But he passed on the case. So he passed it off because he didn't want to be seen as biased or as targeting an attack against Interkin. Mm -hmm. So a few months later, the case was closed without any further action. In 2020, Interkin filed a lawsuit against Horton the reporter who released the sexual assault allegations, and the media company that published the initial article interviewing Mary Cross, claiming that um, they had tried to defame him by inaccurately calling him a statutory rapist and a drug dealer. But I couldn't find any updates on this case. So I actually don't know what happened. The last article I found was from 2018. And I even looked up like, is Todd Intrican in jail? And I couldn't find an answer. Wow. Interesting. So I'm going to say that's probably no. Yeah. So in 2018, Alabama's governor, Kay Ivey, ordered a memorandum to the law that payments of jail food funds could no longer be made to the sheriffs personally. It stated that the money must be paid to county general funds or official accounts, which makes perfect sense. And then in 2019, the Alabama Senate passed a bill increasing the state allowance to feed inmates from $1.75 to $2.25 a day. Okay. So things were starting to look up for Alabama jails. But apparently, in early 2020, two sheriffs regained power over the funds and are able to now use any leftover money on law enforcement purposes. So not okay. for their own personal purposes, but for their own law enforcement team. So this would be things like new staffing or like equipment and things like that. Still incentive to not spend it on food. Exactly. And like, is diverting funds to law enforcement really the way to go? If we were funding this, like putting this funding back into improving the like food systems in jail or even towards like rehabilitation programs, would that not benefit inmates more. It would, but that doesn't seem to be the motivation here. Not the motivation. But what's also scary is they just increased the amount per inmate per day. Totally. So if they can keep the budget small, there's more money to divert. Mm -hmm. That incentive needs to be removed. Food budgets should be spent on food. Period. Period. 
Nothing happens with the leftover money. It goes back to the taxpayers. For sure. There should be incentive to spend the full food budget on food. That just seems so... And also, it's only two twenty-five. That's still yep. very, very small. Yeah. Wow. I think it would be still a challenge to eat on two twenty-five a day. I agree. That's a really frustrating story. Oh, yeah. I found it extremely frustrating to research and cover. Like, very interesting, but very, very frustrating for... So many reasons. Yeah. But yeah, that's like, that's the story of the Alabama food fund scandal. That was really good. And on that note, during the past year and a half, we have been so committed to producing biweekly episodes. Sometimes it almost killed us. (laughs) (laughs) And as an independently produced podcast, we really do this out of sheer enjoyment that we get in sharing these stories and in engaging with all of you on these topics. And it is our absolute dream that one day we can produce this podcast full time. And we're still moving towards that. One day we would love to be one of those annoying podcasts that is filled with ads, but not new ads. (laughs) Yeah, but for now, as we move forward in our careers, we are finding that we need some more flexibility in terms of our podcast release schedule. So we will now be releasing more sporadic episodes based on our capacity. That way, you get more quality content and we don't start losing our hair. For sure. (laughs) We really want to keep our hair. Yes. And as always, we really appreciate your continued support. And the one major way that podcasts can grow is through reviews from you, the listeners. It might seem small, but it really does make such a difference and helps other people find our podcast. So if you haven't already done so, please, please, please consider leaving one for us today or even just a rating preferably five stars. (laughs) And do not fret. We have tons of topics that we still need to cover. So we aren't going anywhere. Definitely not. And speaking of topics, I have a teaser question for our next episode. Becca, what do you think has more vitamin C, an orange or a kiwi? I already know the answer to this one. Yeah, you're a dietitian. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe the listeners don't. Yeah, it's a sneaky, it's a sneaky one. Mm -hmm. We'll leave a pause. Listeners guess. It's a kiwi. It's a kiwi. <laughs> Little note fact, the orange is like the classic thing we think of when we think of vitamin C. Everyone's like, yeah, have an orange. Drink some orange juice. But 100 grams of kiwi has almost double the vitamin C of 100 grams of orange. Yeah, and kiwis are delicious too. Kiwis are so, so good. Do you eat the skin? No, they make my mouth itchy. I don't know if it's like an allergy allergy i have so many freaking allergies probably but like (laughs) eating kiwi is fine but the moment i like the skin touches my tongue it gets a little itchy Hmm. interesting i'm not a skin eater just because the texture is weird and not taking you as a skin eater (laughs) no i'm not a skin eater why (laughs) i don't know i just would have guessed (laughs) (laughs) no i don't eat the skin of kiwis i use a spoon and i scoop it out if we were on a $1.75 diet, you would. I would, yeah. I'd want that fiber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that good fiber. All right. Awesome episode. We'll see you in our next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Unsavory Podcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.